Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. This week, we've got a really interesting fellow named David Such, who is a retired engineer, and he's been researching near-death experiences for the past 15 years. He claims to have interviewed over 1,200 people, and I have a bunch of questions for him about the similarities that people see, regardless of their religion or their upbringing or their culture or any of that. I want to talk about where he sees the world going based on the information that he's learned. And then also, have there been in any situations where people have been healed from their near-death experiences? What are the commonalities? What are the differences? Does a, a Christian see Buddha? Does a Buddhist see Jesus? questions along those lines. So really looking forward to doing a deep dive into all this near-death experience research that he's conducted. Remember to subscribe and like and share this episode. I'd love to hear your comments. I always enjoy reading them and just appreciate all your efforts to endorse the show and share it with others and, and all of that. So let's see what David has to say. Hi, David. Hi, Julie. I'm so delighted that you took the time to join us today. Thanks so much for putting us into your schedule. I've got a whole bunch of questions for you. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, my honor. Let's just get right into it. What's an NDE? Well, an NDE is a near-death experience. The term was originally coined by Raymond Moody, I believe, back in the 70s. And it's actually, from a human perspective, a death experience. People die. Uh, some of the you know, 1,200 testimonies I've heard, the people were dead for uh, more than an hour, a few of them. But from a heavenly perspective, uh, this, there's a cord of light energy that's still attached from the spirit to the body. And until that breaks, they can come back. So it's people who have died physically, but that cord isn't cut and they have an experience in the afterlife and then they return. Do you find in your research that most people experience this phenomenon at some point in their lives, even if it's in a dream? Well, even most people who have heart attacks and so forth do not recall having a near-death experience. So most people who die do not come back reporting to have these uh, afterlife, unearthly experiences. But quite a few do. 
I believe that that happens because when you experience the pure bliss and joy and love of the afterlife, as they describe it, it's very difficult to come back to this uh, earthly plane. But I think there's been at least 10,000 recorded incidents of near-death experiences. So it's a fairly common phenomenon, and uh, we've known about it really for several thousand years. There's incidents of near-death experience testimonies going back to times of Plato. Interesting. Okay. So I guess my back to that question is, do you think that people are having near-death experiences even if they aren't in a medical setting and somebody is really monitoring that they're not breathing for a period of time? Do you think that people experience this maybe in bed at home alone and they just don't even think anything of it because then they have a, they think it's a dream and then they come back? Or do you find that there's a, a big difference between a true NDE and somebody experiencing different realities in dreams or visions? Well, the near-death experience is extremely different from anything we experience here on Earth. So one of the common things people will ask these people is, you know, were you like a ghost? And of course they say, no, I, I was the opposite of a ghost. You come out of your body, you feel more alive and more real than you've ever felt in your life. I mean, just filled up with life. It's the height of existence. You know, when you're having a dream, you think it's real. And you don't know that your dream world is unreal until you wake up in this world and you say, oh, now I realize how unreal that dream world was. Well, it's the same for people who have near-death experiences. They wake up and it's a higher level of consciousness, consciousness than this life. And of course, some people do have near-death experiences um, without dying. I think about two or three of the 1,200 testimonies were people who were just in a meditative state or one guy I recall got in a really bad argument with his wife and said, you know, why is it like this? And his spirit left his body and he had all the same experiences that those who die have had. Now you mentioned sleeping and I have been told by near-death experiencers that we leave our bodies every night and we go to the afterlife and we get communications and we talk with our guides and so forth and we come back and we don't remember it generally. And that is why, and this is just a theory, you know, when you're thinking about something like, oh, what do I do? I've got this big life decision. Let me sleep on it. And then you wake up in the morning and it's clear to you what you want to do. Well, I believe that happens because we get this knowledge and communication every night when we go to bed. We have that uh, visit to heaven when our spirit leaves our bodies. I agree. And it's been my experience as well, David, that our bodies go back to our factory preset frequency vibrational level that we all come in with. And during the day, we're busy and where our emotions are up and down and all over the place. And we're dealing with work and families and drama and whatever. And that when we go to sleep, we go back to, I call it the pre-factory, <laughs> you know, the presetting <laughs> coming in from the factory. And so we're able to get on the spirit level, if you will, of the frequency, because spirit doesn't communicate on the I feel crappy channels. 
when we're going about <laughs> our daily lives and maybe not feeling that great. But when we're asleep and we're on that spirit frequency again, it's easier for them to communicate with us. Have you found anything like that in your research that somebody has said, yeah, we all come in with this vibration and, it, and it's it's something that we just go back to all the time? Well, I have heard that, you know, heaven is our true home and we have pre-lives in the afterlife and we come down here to have these human experiences. But in my own personal experience, I get communication from my spiritual guides. Sometimes I have conversations and it always, almost always happens early in the morning or late at night when I'm half asleep. And one time when I got irritated, they said, why are you talking to me when I'm half asleep? They said to me, well, your mind has got to be relaxed. Just what you said, the cares and worries of the day, you know, our, our brains operating out of the ego-based operation. Uh, and, and especially if we're worried about something or fearful about something, fear shuts down that communication. So definitely when you're in a more relaxed state, uh, the spiritual guides can talk to you better. I agree. Do you find NDEers reluctant to discuss their experience? Oh, yes, sure. Some of them are. Now, if you think about it, there's a very good reason for that. If you think about the human race, why did we become the dominant species on the planet? We don't have big, sharp, pointy teeth. We don't have giant claws. We're not particularly strong or good survivors out in nature. We survived and became the dominant species because of our community, because of cooperating working with each other, you know, being our brother's keeper, watching out for each other. And so every human being is very aware that if you disconnect from the group, you're going to have survival issues, you're going to have problems. And so, you know, when they talk about these experiences, you know, people think, oh, you're crazy. And because you're crazy, you might be dangerous and I need to get away from you. And of course, a hundred years ago, if you talked about your near-death experience, chances are they put you in a mental institution. As a matter of fact, one testimony I heard recently, you know, this uh, woman had a near-death experience back in 1972 when she was giving birth in the hospital. And when she came out of it, you know, she was all excited and she tells her doctors, I was in this other place, the, you know, beauty beyond description and, you know, all the common things you hear in these NDEs. Three weeks in psychiatric evaluation. Now it's becoming more common today. It's becoming more accepted, but certainly people are more reluctant uh, or people are still reluctant to speak about it. But, you know, we're seeing it now in movies, right? Don't go towards the light, Jim, stay here. You know, people joke around about it. And if you were to talk about your chakras or your higher self 50 years ago, people would look at you like you're nuts. And now they, you know, look at you like, okay, I know what they're talking about. It's kind of becoming accepted terminology. So it's becoming more accepted, but we're a ways away yet from it being commonly accepted to just talking about it like, you know, this great place I I went and had dinner yesterday. You know, oh, I had this NDE. Oh, tell us about it. No, we're not there yet. (laughs) Do you think that that's more of a recent phenomenon in the last 150 or 200 years? Or do you think that it's always been a taboo subject even back in the day, you mentioned Plato, I know, Plato and Shakespeare and lots of, I think King Lear mentions it. I think, I think there are a lot of them that mention the, you know, the NDE type of experience. Do you think that it's become as, or it's become more taboo as we've 
become more well-educated, perhaps, and want proof that these kinds of things can happen? Well, I think certainly there are some elements of culture where it's becoming more taboo to to speak about these kinds of things. Religion is kind of being pushed aside. But in another sense, I think there's a large part of our worldwide culture that certainly it's, you know, much more open to hearing that kind of thing. You know, if you were to talk about that 500 years ago, they might think you're possessed. You know, you might be excommunicated from the church or something like that. And even 50 years ago, you know, if you talked about your near-death experience, you know, you got the raised eyebrows, you know, what's wrong with this person, you know, crazy Jim over there talking about his experiences. Maybe he took too many drugs in the 60s or something like that. But it's becoming much more widely accepted, especially because of channels like yours. You know, you've had people on with their near-death experiences. And when I clicked on the very first NDE video back in 2007, YouTube was fairly new and it was hard to find NDEs. I, I might find only one a week. Well, now there's more channels than I can keep track of with, with thousands and thousands. So I think our communication is helping it, helping us bring it to the forefront and, and it's becoming accepted that these things are real phenomenon. Now, whether people believe that they were, you know, real spiritual experiences or hallucinations is another issue, but certainly it's becoming widely accepted that these things happen, that these experiences happen. I don't know who came up with this quote. I think it's been used by a lot of famous people over the years, but just because you believe something isn't true doesn't mean it isn't true. You know, there are <laughs> lots of things that people don't believe, but they're still true. So I think this pertains here too. Tell us how your NDE research journey began. How did this all come about? Did you just grow up as a little boy thinking, oh, I want to study what happens when somebody dies. And then I really want to study what happens when somebody dies and then they come back. <laughs> well, actually back in, I believe it was 1979 when I was 14 years old, I read Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life few years after it came out. And back then I was a Christian and I said, well, that's kind of interesting. Looks like there's some kind of proof that, you know, all this stuff is real. Well, I just put it aside and put it out of my mind and didn't think about it again. And I was a Christian for many years. And in the late 90s, because my job required a lot of typing, a lot of computer data input, um, I got severe tendonitis in my hands. Then I got it in my feet. Then I got it in my jaw. And I had surgery in my hands to release some of the pain. But by 2007, the, the chronic pain had gotten so bad, I had a hard time just being on my feet for more than 10 minutes because the, of the pain in my feet. And, you know, I thought something's wrong, you know, because it says in the Bible that, you know, if you ask for something, you'll get it. And I had asked at least a dozen churches to be prayed for over the years and probably hundreds of people and, and nothing happened. So I came to this very painful conclusion. And that conclusion was, well, you know, I'm not a good Christian. Obviously, I'm the son that God is embarrassed of. You know, I, I want nothing to do with you because you, you haven't been a good child, you know, that kind of thing. Or I thought maybe God doesn't exist, but I was pretty sure it was the first one that I was just out of his favor. And it was very, really painful. And so I was out of work for a few weeks, you know, because I, I just couldn't work because of the pain. And I was at home kind of going between the bed and the chair, uh, trying to stay comfortable. And I clicked on a random YouTube video on my feed about an atheist who died, found himself in a hellish environment of the afterlife and called out to heaven for help and they came and got him. And I had had 
training for my job in, in sales. I was a sales engineer, how to spot a lie. And this guy didn't display any of the signs of lying. Matter of fact, it was the opposite. He was from the, all the signs, he was being very genuine. And so I started looking into it and it just kind of snowballed from there. And then when I started writing my book, um, then it really snowballed. I, you, a lot of these people, they want to t- talk about their experiences and they want to talk to somebody that'll believe them. So even like when I was looking at cars, uh, there was one salesman, he was missing an arm and I didn't ask him what happened, but he said, oh, I had a water skiing accident. I fell and the boat behind me came over and ran over me and severed my arm. And he says, I arrived DOA at the hospital. He says, well, did you go through a tunnel? Did you see this beautiful light? You know, these feelings of love and blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, that happened to you too? <laughs> so he, we stopped what we were doing and he told me his experience. So I've gotten to listen to a lot of really good testimonies just because I got into that hobby, so to speak. And the hobby of asking. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when they find somebody that'll listen and they really open up, which is nice. And I was, I was shocked because my own Aunt Donna had had a near-death experience when she gave birth to my cousin. She never told anybody in the family about it. When I told her I was writing a book, she said, well, you know, I died when I was giving birth to your cousin. She told me about her NDE. <laughs> wow. Well, and as, are you an engineer by training too? You say you're, you, you're a sales engineer. Does that mean you're an engineer and you can speak engineering lingo to other engineers? Yeah, I was a mechanical engineer and I retired for a while back in 2013. And now I do a little bit of consulting on some power plants, but uh, I don't do much of that anymore. So you're a linear thinker as an engineer. And yeah, and you are exercising certainly a different part of your brain with all of this NDE stuff and spiritual stuff and woo-woo stuff. Woo-woo encompasses all of it. So you're, you're really using all the hemispheres of your brain instead of just the linear part that let you do your engineering work and sounds like continues to let you do it. Interesting. So, well, do you think that you went through that situation with all that pain because you were being led in this direction, number one? And number two, do you still have the pain? I'm about 80% healed. And the healing was miraculous. It started about four years ago. And actually, one of my interviewees told me, your healing's coming. Of course, I didn't believe him. And the pain was part of the process to put me in the direction of my life that I needed to go. So Proverbs, the Bible says something that I think is very profound and very true. It says, sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. And there's a very good movie out based on a true story called Father Stu, S-T-U, about a, a boxer who, you know, had uh, some debilitating disease and became a priest and it changed him for the better. So often traumatic experiences will change us and make us better people. And there's even this show called I Shouldn't Be Alive that's on YouTube. And it's very interesting to watch these testimonies because these people go through these horrible things that, you know, it's a show about somebody getting lost in the woods for five days or in the mountains or something. And, and, you know, they're, they're trying to survive. And something very interesting happens when they come out of that experience, you know, they're rescued and they get back to their normal lives. Life is different. 
they tend to appreciate each day more. They tend to be more relaxed. They tend to take more risks and do things, you know, to enjoy life. And I think part of this earthly experience, which is, it compared to heaven, it's, it's quite hellish. It's to help us grow and mature. So certainly we have experiences down here that may seem negative from our earthly perspectives, but they make us better people. I would agree with that. In your research, were there messages gleaned from the testimonials by your subjects, if you will, that not only had a profound effect on their lives, but had the ability to have a profound effect on humanity as a whole? Did you find that? that was it something that was commonplace? Was it sporadic? How did that work? Messages that would affect humanity as a whole? Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah. Can you give us a couple of examples of that? Sure. Um, probably some of the big things are we're loved no matter what. So that was a, a big game changer, at least in my mind and in my life. You know, you mean it's not a reward punishment. It's not a pass fail test down here. You know, I, I'm going home back home when this life is over, no matter how much I screw up or how badly I behave. Yes. You know, we don't love you one bit less just because you misbehaved. That was a big one. Of course, that we're all connected. You know, there is a creative benevolent source of everything in existence that we call God. And these near-death experiencers see this, you know, light and so forth. And when they're in this light, they realize that we are more connected than separate. And of course, down here on earth, what we have is the illusion of separateness, but it's just an illusion. And so, you know, if everyone in the world had a near-death experience, you know, tonight as they slept, tomorrow morning, you know, the, the 50,000 homeless people in Los Angeles, for example, they would be swarmed. Because the idea that near-death experiencers talk about is, you cannot help another human being without helping yourself and without helping the whole because we're all connected. You cannot harm another human being without harming yourself and harming the whole because we're all connected. And so we are seeing a lot of problems on this earth because we think we're separate. You know, there's cutthroat competition and people screwing each other over and corruption, politics and business and banking and all these uh, horrible things going on. So that our common connection is a big one. And of course, uh, the fact that we're doing an important job for creation down here, I mean, that was a big shocker. You know, I thought it was a pass-fail test. You know, I got to get through this miserable life and and then I get to go home and be happy. It's like, no, we're doing a really important job by these physical existences. So for the love of heaven to exist, even for the other intelligent forms of life that exist in this galaxy in compared to earth, fairly beautiful utopian societies for even them to exist. There has to be a free will planet. There has to be a small part of creation experiencing the love fear duality and having a choice. So we are the only free will planet in this galaxy and you only need one just like you only need one big cancer research institute. When they find a cure for cancer, they share it with everybody. Now, what do I mean by free will? I'm not talking about freedom. 
you have freedom in heaven and on earth. I'm talking about free will, which is something different. So if we're all connected, so if we were all connected down here, yeah, I could choose to pet the dog or kick the dog. But that's only if I'm experiencing the illusion of separateness. Because if I'm connected, I'm going to feel the kick. So I really don't have a choice. So down here on earth, we have a, a choice between love and fear to act out of kindness or cruelty because of that illusion of separateness. And every time a human being chooses the path of love, that contributes to the creation process. So we are a critical part of the growth of creation. We're part of the engine of growth of God. And we are part of, and this is just a metaphor, holding the space for the love of heaven to exist. And, and people have been told this. And so there's this perfect plan and it's working itself out in its perfection. That's a common theme you hear from NDEs. Well, when you look around at the world today, it doesn't seem like a perfect world. Well, that's because we're experiencing this love-fear duality. And we're doing an important job for our family and we're doing it because we love them. We are considered the daredevil souls, the crazy ones who are doing the tough work for our family so they can continue and grow. And we are honored by those in heaven. We're considered to be the brave ones. That was a shocker to me. So yeah, there are lots of amazing truths that if humanity was aware of them all, it would drastically change us overnight. But just as it takes many years for a child to grow up, it's going to take a while for us to mature as a species, but we're on the path. When you look at researching something, and I'm an inventor, I have patents and trademarks and stuff like that. Engineers like you would know about that. And uh, I'm an inventor of surgical devices sold throughout the world. And and as I needed to get through the FDA to get my devices approved here in America and then the, the complementary governing bodies in other countries, they wanted to see clinical studies. They wanted to see proof that the device that we were manufacturing was going to be effective and safe to use. Keep it so I've, I've done the university-based research thing on multiple occasions for that. Keeping along those lines, when you're doing this kind of research, do you have some kind of a parameter where you say, okay, in order for something to be legit, I need to hear it from X number of NDE experiencers. Do you, did you have, when you were putting all this research together, did you have some kind of a a measure or a formula that you plugged the different topics into? And if I heard, for, I'm making this up, if you heard 20 people say something along the lines of Earth exists, we're the daredevils of the universe, that kind of thing, in order for you to take it as being legit, how did, how did you gauge that as a researcher? Well, you know, these people, when they talk about their near-death experiences, there's some very common elements and they're all unworldly. So they talk about no time being up there. Um, many talk about the colors of heaven. You know, we have three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue, and a mixture of all those colors form all the colors of the rainbow that we see. And there are over 80 in heaven. Uh, they talk about this love that can't be described in human words. So when I hear those common elements, I tend to believe the story is legitimate. So to answer your question, I don't have a specific number. It sort of is a level of belief, if you can use that term. So when I hear something hundreds of times, like the importance of treating others with love and compassion, 
even when our ego tells us they don't deserve it, even if they've done something horrible to us, you know, loving your enemies. That I have no doubt. When I hear things only two or three times, I tend to be a little apprehensive about believing it. But as I hear it from more people, I tend to accept it. And once I've heard something, uh, you know, a dozen times, I tend to take that on as a belief. And of course, it has to be aligned with the concept of unconditional love. So anything that I hear that's not in alignment with the unconditional love of, of creation, uh, I will dismiss it. And I, I have heard at least one testimony where I believed it, it was a fake testimony, but it's not common. It, most of them are very genuine. Interesting. I just talked to somebody recently as a client and we were having a conversation with her deceased mom, David, in heaven, mm -hmm. her spirit. And the, the daughter wanted to know about the mom's dying experience. And the mom said the most remarkable part of it, and it was really interesting and really fun, but she said the most remarkable part of it was how many colors there were in heaven. You just mentioned that. And she said yeah. it was this kaleidoscope of colors that she didn't even know existed. And she said she couldn't even describe them to us because we don't have a frame of reference for them. But it's interesting to me that you've just mentioned that because I just heard that in the past mm -hmm. few days about the different colors in heaven. And I was picturing one of those old fashioned kaleidoscopes that you turn the edge you know, you turn the one end and it, it's like crystals that are different color that form different shapes and stuff. Did you ever use one of those as a kid? I don't even know if they still make them. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, we um, used to have those little cardboard yeah. kaleidoscopes and you yeah. turn the end and you see the colors. Exactly, which were so fun. So that's so interesting about the colors in heaven. And uh, and I, I just, I, I don't know that I'd heard about that before in such detail and here I am hearing it again. So part of part of the work that I do too is I pay attention to how things feel and I'm sure you do as well. And the fact that I just heard that and you're bringing it up to me 48 hours later tells me, all right, there's a connection here. This is, there's, there are no coincidences in life. There is something here that, that I, we're supposed to pay attention to along those lines. So it seems you, you mentioned in the world that we're living, it, it seems that in today's evolving zeitgeist, if you will, the concept of spirituality seems to be moving to a more inclusive, interconnected perspective. Can you say more about that? Obviously, you're swimming in that pond with NDEers, but do you find that, that societies as a whole, even with everything that's going on in the world, it, that we seem to be more open to discussing these different topics and people's interest levels are taking them, it seems to me, away from organized religion and more into the spirituality space. You have any thoughts on that? Oh, certainly. We are moving into a new place in space right now where we're, we're being exposed to different quantum-based energies, which affects our spirituality, the spirituality of the planet is raising. And so, you know, just as children grow up, we're growing up as a species. And part of that is becoming more aware of our spiritual nature. You know, we have always existed. We always will. 
And just as a human being enjoys watching a good movie or reading a good book to experience a different reality, souls leave the comfort of heaven to come down to earth and have in a human experience for the purposes of learning and growing and supporting our heavenly family and supporting that bubble of love. And so certainly there is a raising awareness of spirituality on the planet. I think the first big explosion of consciousness that happened in my lifetime was the hippie movement of the 1960s. And I'm talking about the original flower children, not the mainstream hippie movement, but the original flower children who, you know, were all about love and peace and acceptance. And of course, I've heard about the future earth and religion's not going to go away. It's going to mature. Some people think that when we become an ascended species and we're this different planet 150 years from now, we're all going to be holding hands singing Kumbaya, and that's just not the case. We're still going to have different beliefs, and there's still going to be religion, but they're going to mature. And they're going to recognize that religion is a tool, and if someone wants to use a different tool, that's okay. So there is an awareness, I think, that's creeping into the consciousness of humanity which really comes from source. And I think that awareness is the recognition of who God is. It's not an old man in a chair in the sky pointing his finger saying, you'd better obey or I'm going to burn you in hell forever. The mind of God is not the mind of human being. It does not have anger or judgment or even expectation. It only loves. And this pure, unconditional love regardless of the exterior of the human being behaving badly in these temporary lives, this pure love is at the core of every human being. And it's at the core of the space between atoms. It's everywhere. It's everything. So this, this measurable quantum energy is everywhere, and we're becoming more aware of it. And we're becoming more aware of our common connection. You know, you said earlier, there's no coincidences. That's one thing NDEs say over and over again, and people are starting to see it. And part of that is the amazing communication we have these days, right? I mean, any person with a phone can talk to anybody else in the world. And so now we're learning things from each other, and we're starting to find out that we're not alone, you know, in our beliefs. Yeah. And even though we'll have our differences in the future, It'll be like a family that uh, gets along, a very healthy family. So they might have disagreements. They might get mad at each other and not talk to each other, but they're not going to pick up guns and knives and start fighting each other. So war is going to go away, and peace on earth will be the first step. So yeah, there's a big consciousness raising of humanity, and uh, that's going to continue, and it's accelerating right now, actually. Well, and I believe that we create out of the contrast. If we didn't know what we don't want, it wouldn't have any, we wouldn't have any incentive to create what we do want. So we need that dichotomy between the two thoughts and it's all perspective. Something that's good for one person may be bad for somebody else, but it's all about us creating for ourselves with our own perspective. And I, I believe that's most likely what your NDEers are telling you that every there are similarities, but everybody's experience is really a personal experience for them based on their frame of reference, based on what their life experience up until that point have been. Is that what you're finding? Oh, yes. So every human being experiences their own unique reality. So a lumberjack in Oregon 
experiences today a completely different reality than a, a taxi cab driver in China. There's no overlap. But a lot of us do have overlaps. So what we're all experiencing is our own personal realities that we create with our thoughts and perspectives that in overlap and interconnect. And a good analogy is when you look at these modern video games, you know, you'll get 10, 15 kids from around, you know, teenagers from around the world, and they'll get online in this interactive video game. Well, they're all seeing something different. And each person goes through a different experience. And, you know, and just like, you know, they don't want to die, we don't want to die. And when we do, we wake up in the real world and realize, oh, it was just a game. But yeah, we're definitely in this interactive reality where we create our own reality just by our perspectives. And, you know, good analogy is, is uh, two friends, two little girls walking down the street. And one is from this uh, wealthy neighborhood where the dogs are well-trained and nice. And so when she, all she's known about dogs is that they're a friend, you know, they're friendly. And so she gets excited when she sees a dog. And there's another girl from a poor neighborhood where they have pit bulls and so forth to protect the property. And she, she knows when she sees a dog, a danger, you know, it's going to try and bite me. Well, if the two of them are walking down the street and they see a dog, they're both going to have completely different reactions from their experiences. And that's kind of what happens to us as humans. We can be in the same circumstance as another human in the same place. And our reaction is completely different because of our experiences. And I like what you said about contrast. That is one of the major things, you know, when people say, well, why do we come down here to suffer? It's to experience contrast, to experience what we don't want. And when you experience what you don't want, what you do want becomes even greater. You know, how do you have a really good meal? Go without eating two days. <laughs> it doesn't matter how bland the meal is. That's going to be a great meal when you haven't eaten for two days. So we're down here to experience contrast, to strengthen what we do want. Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. They're made from organic bamboo and silk, are hypoallergenic and even antimicrobial. Cozy Earth sheets are so amazing. They've been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years in a row, and I have them on my bed right now. So if you're ready to elevate your sleep, Cozy Earth has a special offer for just for my listeners. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code AskJulie for a 35% discount. That's C-O-Z-Y Earth.com and use code AskJulie for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth Bedding. I love them and so will you. You alluded to that Earth in our galaxy is the one with all the daredevils. Do you Have you heard about other galaxies and other dimensions from your subjects? All right, let's talk about that for a minute. So. One of the common questions people ask when they're up there, and now there's no time in heaven, so you can be dead, you know, 10 seconds, and your experience could last what would take years to happen down here on Earth. So one of the common questions is, are we alone in the universe? And the answer is always the same. No, the universe is full of life, and there are countless other dimensions that are also full of life. Now, I haven't heard much about other galaxies, only this galaxy. Earth is the hardest planet to incarnate into in this galaxy. And there are only three planets in the entire universe 
they're as difficult as Earth. So, you know, if you're down here on Earth having a physical life, you're watching this, this show right now, pat yourself on the back. You, you have taken on the granddaddy of physical incarnations. You know, you're like the, it's like the Mount Everest, the physical incarnations. You've got to be an expert soul to come to Earth. And it's full of life. And most of the life in this galaxy is humanoid. And a lot of them went through what we went through already. You know, they go through their violent stage. And every planet in the galaxy will take one or two paths. They will either destroy themselves from stagnation or a combination of war and environmental disaster, or they will learn to live with each other and the environment in peace and harmony. So for many years, Earth was on a self-destruction path. Nostradamus, Mother Shipton, Revelation, those were all accurate predictions based on the potentials of what was happening, where it looked like we were going. But thanks to a lot of help from above, I'm not talking just about spiritual help from heaven. I'm also talking about some of the more benevolent extraterrestrials who are kind of watching over us and helping us out. We avoided that disaster and we're going to become an ascended species. So it won't be too long, probably less than 150 years, when we're going to start communicating with the rest of the galaxy, become an active member, and that's when things will really change. But we're too primitive right now. We're considered too barbaric and too violent. Interesting. I've seen lives on other planets in working with clients and doing past life scans. And it was funny, David, because the first time I saw that, I thought, well, this is a future life. It looked like a Star Wars set. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And I got, and you'll appreciate this, somebody called into my show, this guy called into my show, it was pretty early on, I think it was episode 31, and we're in the 400s now. And he said, was I an engineer in a past life? And so I did my scan on him and I saw flying vehicles, kind of like Star Wars type, a Star Wars set, what it reminded me of. And I said, yeah, you were. And you were in charge of the whole, for lack of a better analogy, the whole electron electric grid that powered <laughs> the city where you were and powered the cars and powered, you know, all the energy and stuff. You were capturing the the equivalent of the sun's energy and you were in charge of that whole electrical grid. And I said to him, what kind of an engineer are you? And he said, guess, I'm a, I was, I'm an electrical engineer <laughs> and I build big jet engines for GE. And I thought, well, duh, there you go. And what I find is that we'll have a semblance of a similar script that will repeat through multiple lifetimes. And obviously, this guy is still exploring being an electrical engineer. Again, no coincidences in life. But it was fascinating. The other big revelation that I got out of that when I thought about it after the fact was I thought George Lucas was he was channeling all that stuff. I mean, I saw it in this past life for this client. And I remember thinking, well, duh, everybody channels everything. Every writer, every composer, every whatever, inventor, whatever, teacher, we're all channeling all day long. We're just not aware of it. But that was the first time that I had seen a past life on another planet. And I originally thought it was a future life just because 
we think that we're going to be more advanced when we have cars like the Jetsons. Well, we have <laughs> most of what the Jetsons have. We have automatic vacuum cleaners and we have phones that have a picture in it and we have lots of other things that they talk about. But this this past life had happened in our equivalent of 1931 on this okay. other planet. So it was fascinating. Have you heard anything like that from any of your oh, yeah. interviews? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you hear all the time about our multidimensional selves. So when a human being, I should say, when What's the soul... What's a multidimensional it, self? I'll, I'll explain. So when a soul grows and matures to the point where they can handle an earthly existence, our energy is so big that you can't take your entire soul and put it into a human body. It would burn to a crisp. So we do what God does, sort of with us as part of creation. We separate a piece of our energy and then it goes down to earth and has a human experience. So most of us still on the other side. Now, from our earthly perspectives, we have past lives. We have the life we're living now. And then we have future lives, which we have not yet lived. But there is no time in the afterlife. And so essentially every life on every planet is happening simultaneously. And so when somebody has a like or a dislike or a certain talent, that often comes from our multidimensional selves. So Cryon, channeled by Lee Carroll, talks about this. He, Cryon says that, oh, my, my host, Lee Carroll, who channels him, he hates the cold. And the reason he hates the cold is because he had a lifetime where he was a courier in this cold mountainous region. And so he was always outside his whole lifetime. He was cold his whole life. So he doesn't like doing that. You know, Peggy Fleming, when she was a, a 10 or 11 year old child, you know, she was a famous uh, Olympic ice skater. And uh, I, sure, I, I, I hope I'm getting the story right. But when she was about 10 or 11 or so, the neighbors invited her to go ice skating. And when she, they came back, you know, the neighbors said, well, how long has Peggy been taking lessons? And they said, oh, she's never ice skated before in her life because she was, you know, doing spins and going backwards and all this stuff. Or, well, she had experience in other lifetimes. When a child gets taught the piano and a month later they're playing beautiful music, well, that's because they have mm -hmm. access on a subconscious level to this multidimensional self. So even me, I, I chose to be an engineer in this lifetime, but very early on in my NDE research, one of the guys I interviewed, a uh, six-hour interview, it was really interesting, he, uh, he said, oh, you're a teacher. I thought, oh, yeah, right. Well, turns out I am. Both my parents are teachers. And the first word I ever spoke was bata. Now, I don't remember doing this. My parents told me I would say bata, bata. And they'd say, David, what does that mean? And I would just say bata. And I eventually stopped saying it. When I got into my NDE research, I started hearing about a group of extraterrestrials called the Pleiadians, who are humanoid. They look like us. If you saw one, you'd think they were Nordic or something like that. And the word for teacher in Pleiadian is bata. <laughs> yeah, no coincidences. Oh wow. So yeah, we have multidimensional lives and our lives affect each other. And, you know, we start out on more advanced planets where it's easy to have a life. And then we build up to more difficult planets like this one. And what I've heard from spirit over and over and over again is we in, we have this human existence to live a life of joy and to serve. And we think, okay, live a life of joy, really, with this contrast of things that we don't want and things that we do want. We're always creating things that we do want 
in the pursuit of happiness, in the pursuit of joy. And that didn't make sense to me until just a few years ago, because I had heard over and over again from spirit, you're here to have a life of joy. Well, if somebody's in the middle of some kind of drama and trauma, there's not a lot of joy in that. But it's the ability over time to find those golden nuggets, even in those tough times, to create a life of joy. Would you You agree with that? um, Oh, yes. I mean, I use the analogy of the Mount Everest of incarnations. Now, if you were to ask every single person who's ever climbed Mount Everest, what was the main reason you did it? Not one of them would say, well, I wanted to suffer. But if you ask them, did you know you were going to suffer before you did it? They say, oh, yeah. Now you get to the top of that mountain and it is an accomplishment like no other. You climb Mount Everest. That's something you talk about for the rest of your life. That's something the relatives, you know, Grandpa Joe, when he was a younger man, he climbed Mount Everest. You know, it's a big thing. Right. And the view is spectacular. I mean, it's an amazing experience. But, you know, that's the way these lives are down here. They're amazing experiences. You learn a whole heck of a lot. I mean, huge leaps and bounds in consciousness. But part of the experience down here is experiencing suffering. We don't come down here to suffer. We're supposed to try and find joy in all circumstances. As a matter of fact, the way we're supposed to deal with pain and suffering, which I didn't do a very good job at the first time I went through my chronic uh, pain issues. When I backslid for a while, uh, I did a much better job. But when we have suffering in life or challenges or going through a rough time, The way we're supposed to handle it in an ideal world is we're supposed to have a a humble dignity and to try and find joy and even laughter if that's possible. And so, you know, the way we react to things is so important. You know, I one time was leaving my friend's house and I had a bunch of stuff in my hands and it started to rain. And so I threw some of it in my trunk and I had put the laptop uh, under the wheel well of my car sitting on the back uh, tire of my SUV. And my friend came out and talked to me for 45 minutes and I forgot about the laptop and I ran over it. Now I could have gotten all upset with myself. You know, how can you be so stupid? And I ran over it and I'm like, well, I don't really have the money for a new laptop right now, but I guess I'm getting a new one. I have an excuse to buy one now. You know, it's the way you choose to react to things that really changes circumstances. I agree. It's all perspective. Let's change change directions for a minute. Do you think a personal, a person's uh, culture, religion, that kind of thing can have an effect or does have an effect on what they experience during their NDE, especially in the heaven and hell space? Have you talked to anybody who believes in heaven and hell and they, that affected what they experienced? Well, sort of, uh, sort of yes and no. I believe it was Eckhart Tolle who said, life will give you whatever experience is necessary for the advancement of consciousness. And it's the same when you have a near-death experience. Heaven gives you an experience that you need. So there are some who are big fans of nature. And so they are brought into one of heaven's beautiful parks or gardens where there are flowers that glow with their own light and sing and things like that. And some who are particularly religious, you know, if you're a Buddhist, Buddha's going to come and greet you. 
You know, if you're a Christian, Jesus will probably come and greet you. You know, when you fly in the town, who's going to pick you up from the airport in an ideal world? The person you like the best, right? But then there are other cases, like the very first one I heard, Howard Storm. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in the afterlife. And here he finds himself out of his body, feeling more real and more alive than he's ever felt in his life. And he's sort of shocked by the whole thing. And one guy, uh, he was a big fan of the apostle Peter. And so when he got to heaven, Peter met him. Now, you can appear any way you want in the afterlife. You can change your form like a shapeshifter. You know, you can appear any way you want. And people generally choose to appear as the best-looking versions of themselves, usually about 25, 30-ish. But <laughs> this guy was a big fan of Peter the, the uh, Apostle. And so he, uh, he gets met by Peter, who probably showed up the way he looked on Earth. And he says, yeah, he was a bit shaggy-looking. <laughs> so you'll be given the experience that, that will best help you. And if... The only way you're going to feel comfortable is with certain religious figures or in a certain environment. That's the experience they will give you. Now, some people have very uncomfortable NDEs, but even those experiences transform them and make them better people. So we get the experience that we need during these NDEs. And some of the NDEs are planned in the pre-life planning. Some are not, but a lot of them are planned in the pre-life planning. And it's a gutsy move from the soul to experience that because it's a big change in your life. I want to come back to the pre-life planning here in a couple of minutes, but along the lines of St. Peter, I always say, I've never heard from spirit that St. Peter's at the pearly gates with a check with a clipboard going, okay, you're allowed in, you got to go burn for eternity in the fires of hell. And, the, you know, I've never seen that. Everybody, <laughs> it's been my experience talking with tens of thousands of spirit over the years, spirits over the years that everybody goes to heaven hell doesn't exist. Hell was created by people in power to try and control the masses. And it's a concept that does not exist. Have you talked to your, your subjects about that? And, and what's the, what's the universal response or what's the most common response along those lines? Well, as near as I can tell from what everyone has said, there really is no heaven and hell in the terms as we understand them in our global culture. You know, if you went to California, for example, and you went to Watts or Compton or, you know, someplace like that where they're, they're really having some challenges, uh, you might look around and say, well, this is hell. And then if you drove over to Beverly Hills, you'd say, well, this is heaven. There are only countless number of realms created by the collective groups of souls in those realms. So in the afterlife, what they do is they set up these spaces called quantum fields. And within that space, anything the mind can imagine or conceive of gets manifested and created. So about 3% of the NDEs were negative hellish experiences. And the vast majority were heavenly experiences. Hell is not a punishment. It is not a sentence. It's not permanent. It, in my opinion, from what I've heard, and it's this is the really the only part of my research that isn't totally clear why these negative realms exist. Now, I know they exist for the benefit of creation because the creation plan is perfect. So if they did not have a role in creation, they would not exist. 
when you disconnect completely from source or from love or partially disconnect in an environment, it creates a hellish environment. And we are creator gods, just like the big God. And so I've heard testimonies where the person dies, they're in this dark void, and they start to panic, and the experience becomes very negative. And as soon as they calm down and say, oh, I'm dead, you know, I must be dead. There's nothing I can do about it. And they calm down, then the experience becomes positive. And then sometimes at that point, they see a light or a being or whatever, and they have their near-death experience. So yeah, there's no um, religious sort of punishment and eternal burning forever. I mean, that doesn't make sense, you know. God loves you. He really loves you. Of course, if you break his rules, he's going to burn you in hell forever, but he loves you. You know, that, that doesn't make sense. So yeah, I, I don't believe in those concepts the way humanity does, but certainly there are countless number of realms. Some of them are lower vibration or high density, and they have their purpose, and souls will participate in these realms for the purposes of learning and growth. It's interesting that you brought up Watts and Beverly Hills in your example early on, because early in my career, I was selling hospital supplies in Los Angeles County. Mm -hmm. I had 255 hospitals in LA County. This was in the, the early 80s. And I used to go to Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital in the middle of Watts, but I was told to go at seven in the morning. And when I drove down the street, you know, a single young woman, and I, and I was told you drive down the middle of the street and you have your purse under the car seat because somebody can break your windshield and come in and steal your purse or come after you, whatever. And it was really scary for me in my early 20s to go do that when I'd call on that hospital. Once I was inside the hospital, I was okay. But the thing that really used to make the biggest impression on me when I was in those county hospitals with all those indigent patients was whatever I'm worried about is nothing compared to what these people are going through. Mm. They're sick. They don't have any money. Some of them maybe are homeless. They don't have any way to support themselves. And Ryan, get a grip. Whatever it is that's bothering you is really nothing. So to your point, even when we're in a circumstance that's less than optimal, it could be scary. It could be whatever. There are always nuggets of positive things that come out of it. And that sticks with me 40 years later of those experiences in those county hospitals in LA, and they're still there. That's where the people go that don't have insurance and can't afford to pay for a doctor. And God bless them, they need to be cared for. But boy, that struck me every time I went in there. And I, and I think that goes along in line with what you were talking about with people that have the near-death experiences and, and maybe less than optimal. And once they relax and they get out of the fear, which is a low vibration, then they can really see clearly that it's all about the love. Yeah. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? It's all about the love. <laughs> I'm sure there are lots of it songs does. like that. <laughs> How do Jesus, Buddha, St. Peter, the Virgin Mary, and other religious figures appear to so many people at the same time? And are they the same energy just showing up in a different 
suit, if you will, a different costume, you alluded to that earlier, so that the person feels comfortable based on what their experiences are. I guess the big question is, are they the same energy, just just taking a different form, a different image? Difficult for us as human beings to understand the soup of creation, separate yet connected. They are all expressions of the one creative benevolent source that expresses itself in all that exists. But from our earthly perspectives, yes, we do see them as individuals. Yes, they can be in two places at once. You know, imagine if you had an incredible mind, you're a hundred thousand times smarter and faster in your thinking than the average human being. You would be really bored having a conversation with one person. You'd need to have a thousand conversations at once to, to not go crazy. And so, of course, these masters or advanced spirits, they can be doing a lot of things at once. It's not at all chaotic for them. You know, if you hear a, several different songs being sung together in harmony like they do in uh, these churches and things like that, you know, it, it, would, it would seem like chaos, but we managed to take several different songs and sing them together and there's this harmony. And that's the way it is down here with that. So they, they have these multidimensional selves and they are perfectly comfortable and it feels very natural for them to be doing many things at once. Multitasking is a, it is a primary attribute and talent of ascended masters. Well, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. Most people think, to your point earlier, God's some old man with white hair and a long white beard sitting on a throne someplace on a cloud up in the sky. And I believe that we're made in the image and likeness of God in spirit form. So if God can be everywhere all at the same time, so can we. We have the ability to do that. And you alluded to this earlier also that we live multiple lifetimes concurrently. Well, that makes my head want to explode because I just <laughs> can't even fathom that because I don't have a frame of reference for it. However, I go to the place of, is it feasible? I guess it's feasible. We'll figure out when we transition, right? But boy, it sure doesn't. I, I can't figure out how that works. But I don't think I'm supposed to know how it works. It's yeah, just it's, hard it's for us. just been told that yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You touched on the subject of music a minute ago and mm -hmm. I am fascinated with the celestial music, the solfeggio uh frequencies, that kind of a thing that the old masters have used to write music, the Gregorian chant, other chants that date back, God, to the third century or even earlier, you know, BC, these melodies. And, and I laugh because the solfeggio frequency is even the do, re, mi song from Sound of Music, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. <laughs> that, that is one as well. Do you have any, subjects in your research that report hearing music or hearing music that is unlike something that they've heard in their human lives so far? Oh, yes, that's very common. Those who hear the music of heaven, they say, our best, most beautiful music here on earth compared to the music in heaven sounds like a child banging on a pan with a stick. 
And probably the best description I've heard of the music of heaven comes from Don Piper's book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. He was a pastor who died in a car accident on a bridge, and uh, he really describes the music well. And I put that two or three page quote from his book in mind. So, uh, you know, you can read it uh, in either one of those places, but he gives a really good description of the music. You know, you become part of the music and it fills you up. Yeah. And he says that was his favorite part of heaven, but some like the sights, some like the music, some like the smells, you know, what most people talk about is just that feeling of love that's so strong that even the word love can't describe it. But yeah, lots have heard the music of heaven. It's supposed to be quite beautiful. I'm looking forward to hearing it again and remembering Mm, yeah. I think I'd like all of it all at the same time. <laughs> that, that would be good too. Yeah. Well, I had uh, Eben Alexander, Dr. Eben Alexander on the show, and he talked about that the celestial music was so amazing and how he would reach higher and higher levels of consciousness in his NDE. And, and the music seemed to help him soar, helped him reach higher and higher levels of consciousness, which I thought was really interesting. I think it's interesting too, how music is being used for healing. Certainly the sound bowls and the pitch, pitch tuning forks or not pitch forks, but tuning forks (laughs) and things like that seem to stimulate and vibrate different energetic fields to relieve pain and to produce feelings of joy and the feelings of relaxation and and things like that. Dr. Alexander and I actually discussed too, I spent 30 years in and out of surgeries, developing products, testing prototypes, stuff like that. And I'm interested in the, the devices now that use sound frequencies to heal without making an incision sound like the lithotriptor, you know, is is a frequency that's used to break up kidney stones. That's been around for a long time. But there there are new devices that are being invented that are used in place of what we know as traditional surgery. Did you have any subjects in your research, David, that talked about they had Anita Morjani is probably the most well-known one in this in this day and age, but somebody that had some kind of a disease or illness and that when they went to, to heaven or whatever they want to call it, was music used to help heal them? Did they have another experience and did they find that they were healed of whatever their physical ailment was when they came back after their NDE? Sure, yeah, the body is whole and healed in the afterlife. You know, somebody is missing their legs. They're in the afterlife and they have their legs. And of course, in the higher dimensions, you don't have a body, you're pure energy. But yes, when they come back, so when you're in an NDE, you get infused with this high frequency, this very high vibration. And when you come back and you're in your body, your frequency is raised, your vibration is raised. And so just like the old movie projectors where the film gets projected onto the screen, your spiritual health projects onto the physical body. So it is quite common for those who have had near-death experiences from an accident or some sort of physical trauma to come back and have miraculous recoveries. And of course, you know, Don Piper had a miraculous uh, recovery, a long recovery, but it was miraculous. Howard Storm as well. And that was the first ND I ever heard. 
And of course, doctors are well aware of this. They give it a name to dismiss its importance, but they, and they don't understand why, but you know, if they name it, well, now they feel comfortable and okay, we know what it is. Well, they don't know, they don't understand it, but it's called spontaneous remission or spontaneous recovery. And yeah, lots of cases where people came back and just had very fast, miraculous healing. So that's extremely common with near-death experiencers. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's been my experience that spirits of unknown siblings or children present themselves when a person is dying. I describe what I call the 12 phases of transition, where deceased loved ones and the spirits of deceased pets show up as somebody is at the end of their life. And university-based research supports that 90% of people see these deceased loved ones and pets either in dreams or visions. So have you had any of your subjects talk about seeing seeing like a baby that they didn't know that they had. In most instances, what I find is that it's a baby maybe that was miscarried and the mother didn't know about it, or it was a sibling that somebody had that they didn't know about until some research was done after the fact and gene- genealogical research or talking with Aunt Wilma, who knew the family history, said, oh yeah, your mom had a baby that died at three months old, but then they just never talked about it. Have you found that to be the case with oh, yeah. some of these interviewers? Yeah, that's real or common. interviewees, I should say. Yeah, that, that's Is super it? common. Uh, I've lost count of how many times people met their former pets in heaven and they could communicate with them and have a conversation, you know, so you'll see your pet again. And of course, lots of people meet, Yeah, you know, great grandparents that they never met down here on earth that died long before they were born. And it's pretty common for women to meet a child and have it. They appear as a child, you know, because it's kind of a visual thing for the human being to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, they meet a child that was either miscarried or aborted. I remember one woman, she gets to heaven and a little girl, a little 10-year-old girl comes up and says, hi, mommy. And she says, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. You know, I don't have any children. And she says, yes, you do. I'm the child you aborted. And of course, she starts to cry because she was had an abortion when she was a teenager. And, you know, I'd felt horrible about, the whole thing. And here her daughter was in heaven alive and well. And and the daughter says, mommy, don't cry. It, it's okay. I forgave you. And besides, I really like it up here, you know? So yeah, it's quite common for them to meet. Yeah. Know, I heard about one where a uh, guy came back and he said to his parents, I met my brother in heaven. And he never asked <laughs> the brother, wait a minute, I don't have a brother. How are you, my brother? He just kind of accepted it. He says, I met my brother my older brother and the parents, you know, their eyes get big. Oh yeah. You had a brother that died at birth, but we never talked about it. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I had that happen when my own mother was dying because my Mima, her, her mother, my paternal grandmother was holding an infant spirit in the room. And I asked my dad, I said, Mima's holding that baby spirit. Did you guys lose a baby or have a miscarriage or something that I didn't know about or that we didn't know about? He said, yeah, before your older brother was born, your mom miscarried and she was pretty far along. So there was that baby. And it's fascinating when we can do that. How has this research affected your belief or has it affected your belief in God? Oh, it's a huge change. So. I used to see God as what religion portrayed, you know, the 
loving but very strict disciplinarian. And you better walk the line or it's eternal fire and damnation. And now I'm much more relaxed, you know, very early on in my research, especially even the first testimony, you know, the guy's being brought towards heaven. He calls out to heaven for help and Howard Storm's being brought towards heaven and he sees this amazing place of love and beauty and he and pureness and goodness. And he thinks, I'm garbage, scum, filth. They've made a mistake. I don't belong there. And they stopped and he was with Jesus and he turned to him and he said, we don't make mistakes. You belong here in heaven with us. So just to know that I'm loved no matter what I do, I have the freedom to do whatever I want is huge. That I'm not judged, that's huge. That I'm never in any danger. You know, it's just like waking up from a dream when you leave this life. You know, you have a a nightmare and it's just this horrible thing and you wake up and your heart's pounding and you're sweating and then you go, oh, I was never in any danger. I was safe the whole time. Well, that's how it is. You know, no matter what happens to us down here, these lives are going to end someday. You know, we're, we're supposed to extend them and stay here as long as we can and do the work. But yeah, it's affected just the way I view God. I mean, I used to view him like the angry dad, you know, that was going to come home and uh, you better watch it. And now he's just the gentle, loving father and a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, God's got an amazing sense of humor. And if you're really communicating with God, he's going to make you laugh. You know, he's going to give I you words of wisdom to help you and move you along. He's going to, especially Jesus. Jesus has a wonderful sense of humor. And that's something you wouldn't think of, but people who have met those in heaven, God, Jesus, you know, other religious figures and people, they say, oh yeah, they got a great sense of humor up there. Why wouldn't they? You know, <laughs> of course they're going to have humor in heaven. If it's a perfect place, there's going to be great humor. Well, I find that too in the medical intuitive and energy healing work that I do, David, because God has such a great sense of humor. I say it's spirit working through me and with me in these analogies that I get to describe the healings that I'm watching in my mind's eye. And yeah, I mean, here, somebody's elbow looks like whipped cream or something that's just so out of the blue, just hilarious. And it's because we're supposed to live a life of joy. And when we're communicating with spirit, when we're in the frequency, the vibration of spirit, it's love and joy. We're supposed to have fun with this. We're supposed, I I always think of the line, lighten up, Francis. You know, I mean, (laughs) it's so scary when we have some medical thing going on. And yet these energy healings that I get to watch all day, every day as I'm working are just so much fun and they're so energizing and they're so uplifting and and all of that, even if we're dealing with something that's a very serious illness that could be life-threatening. It's still, there'll be some crazy analogies come in that are just, you can't help but laugh. It's really quite quite a joy to be able to do this kind of stuff. In your book, God Took My Clothes, what a great topic. I mean, boy, if that doesn't make you want to read this book, you guys, I don't know what will. God Took My Clothes. You talk about the future of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a an ap- uh, appropriate question right now with a, a new war beginning to, to just happen here, the Israeli 
Hamas conflict is very much in the news and we've got the Ukraine thing and we got the Taiwan China thing and all of this. And boy, you listen to the news and you're thinking, holy mackerel, the world is, is just going to hell in a handbasket. What, what is the message that you hear over and over again about the future of humanity? The future is bright. Now, we talked about that perfect plan working itself out in its perfection. Perfection. Well, when you survey the world today, it sure doesn't seem like that. It seems like what you just said. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. You know, we're going to destroy ourselves. Well, that's not going to happen. You know, we don't see what's coming. And that's the problem. If there was a giant house, big mansion that your extended family lived in for generations, and it served you very well, but now the roof has got holes in it and it rains on the inside when it rains outside and the plumbing is leaking and the electrical is faulty and the, all the wood is rotten to the core and you just can't patch it up anymore. And it's got to be bulldozed to make way for a bigger, better, newer, more modern house. The day you're standing there in your property and watching the only home you've ever known get destroyed, it's going to seem like the end of the world. And we don't see what's coming. So what's happening in the world right now is there's a great battle between light and darkness for thousands of years. Dark was always winning. They were always supported by the energy of the planet. And now love is winning. And we have uh, leaders and globalists that want to drag us back into the old way of doing things. And as they are losing control over the people, as humanity is going in the direction of cooperation instead of competition, of community, rather than separateness, of love and compassion, rather than punishment. As we're moving towards this new world of love, they are trying to drag us back because they don't want to lose their power. They don't realize how good this new world's going to be. And so for the first time in history, for instance, human beings, the bulk of them do not want war, but the leaders are dragging us back in. And so as they lose control, they get, they're going to get more and more brazen and more and more aggressive. And what that will do is it, it will accelerate their demise. So we are about 50 years away from peace on earth. There's no set timeline. Remember, human beings have free will, so we can, you know, speed up, slow down, change direction. But we're about 50 years away, more or less, from peace on earth. And that'll be the first step. And then about 150 years from now, there's going to be this new planet. As different as it was 150 years ago. You know, think about 150 years ago, no electricity, no phones, you know. You might get a newspaper that's three months old, but pretty much you lived in your little farmhouse and maybe you went 20 miles away at the most. Maybe once in a great while, you took a several day trip and you went a couple hundred miles away. Completely different world. And that's the way it's going to be. It's going to be so different that, you know, if an alien showed up and looked at the planet today, he'd say, oh, you guys are going to destroy yourselves. You're trashing the environment. You're fighting each other. You know, you're, uh, you have way, way too much manufacturing and trash and pollution. You're, you're not going to make it. And if that same alien came back 150 years from now, his jaw would drop. <gasps> what did these guys do? They really made this place into a garden paradise. How did they clean up their act so fast? And so what's happening is there is a new paradigm. And the old paradigm is this. You attached yourself to a group, whether it was a big family or an army or something like the Roman Empire, and you made yourself as strong as possible and you took from others to survive. Well, the new paradigm is this. 
and we haven't gotten it into our heads yet because with 1950s technology, this new paradigm is possible. And this new paradigm is with our amazing ability to communicate, you know, what we're doing right now, with our mass manufacturing, with our technology and all our advancements, there is enough for everyone. We don't have to fight each other to survive. The old system of cutthroat competition is going to be replaced by cooperation. And when we get peace on earth and we really start cooperating, it's really going to move fast. Things are really going to happen. You know, we're going to attack the big plastic garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean. We're going to clean up our air and soil and water. You know, we're going to have clean energy with new technologies like low temperature geothermal and zero point energy. We're going to have psychic abilities and have friendships with beings on other planets and with people across the globe. I mean, imagine a world where you said, well, let's invite Martha and Jim over for dinner. Oh, yeah, they said they can make it. <laughs> you know, no cell phone needed. And that's the world where we're going to. We're going to be able to communicate with plants and animals and tell the plants where to, gr where to grow. You know, we're going to create these beautiful gardens, not by digging and planting seeds, by just talking with the plants. You plants do this. You trees grow over there that kind of thing. So it's going to be a different world. And as we see the chaos of change, because 150 years is a long time for a human being, but from a celestial time, that's very, very short. It's a blink of an eye. So when changes are happening that fast, it's chaotic. You know, there's two ways to do things, slow over a long time or quick, but that comes with pain and suffering. So we're going to have a lot of chaos and drama. And what I tell people is turn the news off. The news is a well-crafted fear report. The human consciousness was not meant to take on the chaos, drama, suffering of an entire planet. And that's exactly what the news media brings into our living rooms. It's usually negative, and then it's usually spun with a certain amount of misinformation. So what I try and do is I try and pay attention to the world around me, the people I come in contact with every day and do my best to be kind and loving and passionate. I fail a lot, but I'm doing my best and I'm trying. And you know, when you start paying attention only to your own world and the people around you, it's a lot better world. Because in my world, there's no war. I mean, I hear about it secondhand. Uh, it was two months into the war between Russia and Ukraine before I heard about it. And my world's really peaceful. I've never seen a stabbing or a shooting. I mean, I hear about them occasionally, but I've never seen one. My world's beautiful. The world the news brings to my living room is is horrific. And the fact is, there's a lot more good happening in the world than, than evil. And we get more of what we focus on. So, you know, what you focus on determines your level of happiness. Happy people don't have a perfect set of circumstances. They're good at focusing on the right thing. So I tell people, just pay attention to your own world. And as it gets crazy, be the, be the light, be the one person who's smiling and keeping their calm through it all and saying, I know where this is going. This is the two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum because it's part of growing up and he'll get there. Yeah, so I tell people, and I have to tell myself this, to just relax. The new world of love is coming. Wow. I feel like we should have the end credits in some big John Williams, you know, song that he's composed for that. That was, that was remarkable. Wow. 
lot there to unpack. I'm going to have to have you back and we'll we'll do that sometime. How can people learn more about you and your work? Well, they can contact me through my email, which is at my website, godtookmyclothes.com. There's a link to my spiritual counseling. And there's also a download of the first couple chapters of my book. In case you're interested in it, you can read a few chapters and decide if it's the kind of thing you want to spend money on. And then, of course, if you speak Spanish, because I guess Spanish is considered a different book, so the publisher doesn't have the rights to that. I'm allowed to give that away for free. You can download the entire book in Spanish. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us. David, thank you for for being game to answer this far-ranging group of questions that I threw at you. I think your answers certainly were thought-provoking and and enlightening and uh, and require much more thought processes on my part. But in the meantime, everybody's sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama, and from Texas, too, where David is. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.